Leading or managing people in an organization is a tough job. And it gets just that much tougher when the folks that you are choosing to lead are highly creative. In this episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast, I visit with Todd Henry. He's the author of Herding Tigers, Be the Leader That Creative People Need. If you or your organization has creative people, and let's face it, that's what drives a lot of business today, you need to check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz, and my guest today is Todd Henry. He is a speaker, consultant, advisor, and author of a number of books, including the book we're going to talk about today called Herding Tigers, Be the Leader That Creative People Need. So, Todd, uh, welcome to the show. John, it's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I can't believe it's taken me this long. Uh, I'm a big fan of your previous work, uh, Die Empty. Um, in fact, you were uh, awesome enough that you just happened to be passing through town, and we flagged you down to come speak at one of my events, and uh, it, it was very, very motivating for everybody there. Oh, it was so much fun, and I just have to say, as encouragement to you, um, and you know, you're like, like the most humble person in the world. So I know that you would never toot your own horn, but just seeing your community there and seeing how people responded to you and responded to what you have built there. Uh, it just really showed me the kind of integrity that you bring to your business um, because you were able to attract people from all over the place to come to Louisville to, to spend you know some time with you uh, learning about the things that you, that you uh, wanted to teach them. And so, uh, yeah, I just, just as encouragement to you, it was really, really uh, amazing to see your community in action there as well. And you didn't ask me to do that, but I, but I wanted to do it anyway. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but uh, long-time listeners know I'm, I'm not really that humble. So Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me ask you the big question that came to my mind as I was reading Herding Tigers. How does leading creative people differ from being a creative leader? Oh, that's a great question. No one has ever asked, asked me that, actually. Um, so listen, we're all creative. You know, we all have to solve problems every day as a function of our job. That's just kind of the nature of the modern workplace. And so, you know, if you have to go to work, solve problems, figure things out, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a business owner, you are creative to a certain extent. Um, and what I wanted to do in this book was talk about the, the dynamics of leading highly creative people. So leading highly creative people is different from being a creative leader because you can be a creative leader and lead, you know, a team of, uh, you know, engineers or a team, which by the way, engineers are incredibly creative, right? And incredibly, you know, bright in that, in that way. Um, but you know, you can be a highly creative leader and be leading a more mundane process oriented business, um, and still be highly creative because you still have to solve problems, figure out systems, etc. But this book really is about leading highly creative people, people who maybe think a little bit differently from the norm, maybe people who might be a little bit more difficult to wrangle. And what I wanted to do is really address some of those common dynamics among teams that are that are highly creative. What is it that makes them especially difficult to lead? And how can leaders, especially leaders, maybe that are stepping into a role of leading highly creative people for the first time, um, how can they better position themselves to set their team up for success, which is, you know, that's the goal of the leader is to, to help their team succeed, not necessarily for, for them to succeed because if their team succeeds, then they will succeed. Well, so I guess there's, it kind of begs two questions. I mean, 
maybe you're defining you're defining creative person <laughs> in a very st strict sense, like the graphic designer or the writer or the video editor. Is that I mean, is that fair? I, I think it it is fair, but I think that this applies to really leading any group of people that has to figure it out and make it up as they go. So, um, you know, if you're a sales organization, you, you, you're having to come up with creative solutions all the time to reach potential clients, uh, having to re-strategize all the time. If you're, like I said, leading a group of engineers, that is a project-based business or pro pro project-based uh, uh, function, but it's highly creative because you are doing nothing but problem solving all day. You're looking out, exploring what Steven Johnson calls the adjacent possible, looking for potentially useful fodder for your creative process. And so all of those industries have some of these same dynamics that I describe in the book. Now that said, yes, my background, my experience is in leading the the quote unquote traditional creative, which is the you know the designer, the writer, the videographer, those kinds of people. Um, so yes, I was kind of writing specifically from those kinds of experiences, but I think that the advice in the book applies more broadly to any group of people who have to solve problems and make it up as they go. So, so fundamentally then, I mean, what, what does this group, what do these creative people need that is fundamentally different? So there really are two primary things that creative people need from their manager in order to thrive. The first one is stability and stability is about ensuring that you have clarity of process clarity of expectations, that they know that the rules of the game aren't going to change midstream. You know, in a lot of industries that don't require a tremendous amount of overhead in order to accomplish the work, it's not that big of a deal if the objectives change midstream. Because, okay, now we've got a new strategy. That means my job is going to be different tomorrow. But when you're doing highly creative work that requires a tremendous amount of ramp up, and, uh, you know, forethought and then, you know, iteration when the rules of the game change midstream, it can be extremely frustrating. So if somebody isn't bought in uh, to, a, to a strategic direction, uh, you know, and let's say you get two weeks into the project and suddenly your boss's boss swoops in and says, you know what, this isn't really working for me. Well, your team has spent two weeks iterating on that idea. And now they have to go all the way back to the beginning, re-strategize and start all over again, simply because someone wasn't bought in. That's tremendously expensive to the organization. It's very frustrating to a team of people. And so over time, the team of people just basically says, all right, I'm just going to wait until you tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm not going to bring my best thought to the table and my best effort until I know it's not going to be wasted effort if the rules are constantly changing. And so they need some degree of stability. There's a myth, John, that highly creative people just want complete freedom. Just don't fence me in. Just give me no boundaries. I just want to do what I want to do. And But that is, it is a myth because the reality is a healthy Creative process has boundaries. It has rails uh, in order to focus the creative energy. And without that, that energy is just going to wither up and, and die. So stability is the first thing that we need. Clear, clear boundaries, clarity of expectations, clarity of process. But the second thing that highly creative people need is they need to be challenged. 
They need to be pushed. They want to know that their leader has faith in them, that their leader sees things in them, maybe that they don't even see in themselves yet. And they want to be pushed to be the best that they can be and to try new things, to tackle new kinds of projects, to venture out into those risky territories, and to know that if they fail, that somebody has their back. And this is also very important. You know, people won't take risks unless they know that the leader is there to, to have their back. If it's a strategic risk, not if it's a stupid risk, but if it's a strategic risk, then the leader needs to have their back and they need to know that they're not just walking on thin ice and, you know, hey, you could die and lose your job at any moment or else people will begin to hold back just a bit. Now, the problem with stability and challenge is that they exist in tension with one another. So as we increase the amount of challenge, we tend to destabilize the organization. This is where a lot of startups and entrepreneurial organizations live. It's we're building the bicycle as we're trying to ride it and we're going 100 miles an hour down the highway and we're trying to avoid traffic and, oh, is this just wonderful? Well, yeah, it's wonderful for a little bit, but then over time, people begin to, they begin to fry, they begin to burn out because they're not, we're not wired for that kind of challenge without the supporting infrastructure to support that challenge. And then of course, on the other end of the spectrum, you have organizations that kind of settle in and they're so processized that there's no challenge any longer for the people on the team and people get bored, they get stuck, they start looking for broader horizons. And this is often where you hear people say things like, I'm just not really challenged around here. I just don't feel like I can really do my best work here. I feel like I'm not growing. Well, sometimes it's because they don't feel challenged. You don't feel like they're getting what they need from you as a leader in terms of challenge. And so as a, as a manager, as a leader, as an entrepreneur, somebody who runs a business full of talented people, it's you are in a unique position to be able to identify that right mix of stability and challenge for those people on your team. And so if you notice somebody seems to be burning out pretty frequently, well, you need to ask, okay, is it because there aren't processes in place? There's no stability there to support what I'm asking from them in terms of challenge. Or if somebody's constantly complaining, they feel bored, they feel stuck. Is it because I'm not giving them an opportunity to grow themselves, to challenge themselves and to, to venture into those uncomfortable places? One of the places that you spend a lot of time, and I was glad to see this because um, I see this actually in lots of organizations with lots of, of you know small business owners, even whether they're managing creatives or not. If they're managing people, so often they get in this kind of weird cycle of uh, giving work, assigning work, um, you know, creating process and structure, and then the minute something gets a little hard, they take it all back. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, it's, right. you know, there's no way to grow <laughs> for, you know, for anybody, including the organization, um, if you keep taking the work back. And I, I, I you, I think you called it stop doing the work, um, right. that, that you need right. to, you know, you need to learn this. And, um, you know, that's first off, what, what do you feel leads to that? And I guess, secondly, how do you solve that? Well, I think that for, I mean, especially for entrepreneurs, like think about somebody who started a business. I know a big chunk of the people who follow your work are, are small business owners, entrepreneurs. Um, you know, you, there's a tremendous amount of identity wrapped up in starting a business, in, in the business itself. And so you identify yourself by the output of that business and sometimes in healthy ways and maybe sometimes in not so healthy ways. So as you start to grow your business and you start to hand off more and more responsibility to other people, 
it becomes difficult sometimes to separate yourself a bit from the business, from an identity standpoint, so that you're allowing other people to take ownership of certain aspects of the business so that you're not the one constantly there over their shoulder. If you are the person constantly over their shoulder, then again, they're just going to say, you know what, just tell me what you want me to do. You know, you've hired great people and then you're going to look over their shoulder and micromanage every decision they make. Well, that's not the way to scale a business. Um, but it's easy for that to happen because so much of your identity is wrapped up in the work that gets done in the business. And so what we have to do is we have to transition from a maker mindset to a manager mindset. We have to transition from a, from a mindset of presence to a mindset of principle or from a mindset of control, which is what really all this is about. It's about us wanting to control the work of the organization to a mindset of influence. We need to establish rails. We need to have a clear leadership philosophy. We need to help people on our team learn how we think about the work and how we think about decisions that we make, not just which decision in a specific scenario is the right decision to make according to to us. Um, and so I think it's difficult to make that transition, to move from control to influence. I think a big part of that is just extricating yourself. I think about the world that I come from, you know, somebody maybe was a great designer or a great writer and they get promoted. You know, what, what happens typically in organizations is somebody is really good at something. And so somebody comes along and says, you know what, you're a really good designer. You know what you should do? You should lead other designers. Well, that's a fundamentally different skill set. That's a totally different thing. And yet that's exactly what we do. And so this person, their entire career has been Basically, they've built their entire career upon the fact that they're really good at a thing. And that thing maybe is design or maybe that thing is you know, financials or whatever it is. But they've been really good at that thing. And now all of a sudden, they're transitioning to not doing that thing, but leading other people who are doing that thing. Well, how do they identify themselves? Who are they anymore? What is the value they contribute? Because before they could point to a thing and say, I did this. Well, now that you're leading other people, what is it exactly that you do? I think that's where the identity crisis often resides in this. And so our job is to shift our mindset from a maker mindset, from control to influence, which means I'm going to teach my team a series of principles to help them make better decisions on their own. I'm going to teach them how I think about what a good idea is, how I think about a good risk versus a bad risk. I'm going to teach them how to determine the quality of a product and say, okay, is this, is this good? Is this a good output or is it not quite there yet. How do we define excellence as an organization? I'm going to teach them how conflict should be handled so that they can handle conflict between themselves instead of having to come to me every time there's a conflict on the team. Once we begin to teach these principles, then we can step back and do the job that we're actually accountable for, which is either growing the business or leading the team to grow the business, depending on, uh, you know, the, the type of business that we're running. You know, and I, I think for me, at least, you know, over the years, the lessons I've really learned is that this has to be very intentional, of course, uh, mm. but, but that there are times when I'm doing my thing, you know, like you, I go out and I speak and I write and I'm. You know, I'm I'm doing the the work really in the business, and then I but I have a team of people too, and it's almost like I have to switch on that hat and remember that I'm now right. now now I'm leading, um, so I'm not supposed to have all the answers, and uh, you know that that to me is the hardest part because you know people come to you as the leader and they say, Todd, I, should I do this? And your response, or at least my response, is usually, well, I'm gonna they ask me a question, I'm gonna give them the answer, and and what I've learned over the years is. Um, 
you've got to you've got to establish this practice of of giving it back to them and say what would you yes. do in that situation or something of of that nature and and you know then of course the other challenge is it, it you know it, you've got to stay so consistent I think with it because right. um, you know how many how many companies have read a book like yours and person goes back and says it's going to be different now <laughs> and yes that's exactly right and and you know the the challenge in all of that is uh, you know that we as a leader our area of greatest insecurity is the place where we have the potential to do the most damage. Right. So as a leader, if, if we're not aware of that, the fact that it's really hard for us to let stuff go, the fact that it's really difficult for us to uh, to to let our team run with things, you know, those areas of insecurity become the places we have to turn into watch points uh, personally, because they uh, your area of greatest insecurity is the place where you have the potential to do the most damage to your team and ultimately to your business if you're not careful. So how much. How, how much of the job, you know, of the leader? Because I, I think creative people seek inspiration. They are, they tend to be maybe a little more curious um, about how things work and why they work and don't work. I mean, so how much of the job of the leader in this case is to keep those folks inspired? I think it's a huge, a huge percentage of the job is keeping them inspired and keeping them focused on the right things. Uh, you know, setting good rails, making sure that they're looking in the right places. Hey, look over here. Hey, have you seen this? Hey, um, let's not focus on that right now. Let's look at this thing over here because this seems to be the thing that has the most potential. That's not the same thing as doing the work for them. That's that's playing basically doing doing traffic flow for them. It's making sure that they're winnowing out the stuff that you can see is not really essential and focusing them on the things that are actually most important. But the thing is, if we want to be an inspirational leader then we have to be inspired ourselves. And this is something I find often in the lives of leaders is that they they want to inspire their team, but they're not building practices into their own life to keep themselves inspired. They're not dedicating time for study, for going out, for exploring, for tilling the soil and looking for potentially useful things in the environment that they can funnel to their team. Um, they're not doing any kind of personal and professional development themselves, and yet they expect their team to be doing that, but they're not developing themselves. And so... I think the first thing we have to recognize is that if we want to be an inspiring leader, if we want to be the kind of leader that's bringing ideas to the table and pushing our team in the right place and is able to think systemically in a way that's actually valuable and useful to our team because we're seeing the patterns that are emerging in the work and in, and in the team dynamics, then we have to be dedicating time and energy to developing ourselves, to studying, to looking for patterns out there in the marketplace and patterns out there in the environment. That's really one of the things we're uniquely positioned to do as leaders because of our perch. And yet often we don't do that. If you are not inspired, then you cannot inspire your team. So one of the things um, that, that I, you know, it's got to be part of, I mean, it's part of any leaders, you know, we've got objectives, we have key results that we're trying to do, we have deadlines, you know, so there, there are things that have to be measured and tracked. I would suggest that some people would say that that's harder to do with creatives. I mean, you know, maybe a deadline works, maybe it doesn't. But how do you know, how do you define and, and track, you know, what might be different, you know, with a creative team? That is, that's a really great question because you're right. I think, you know, if you're, if we're doing, uh, you know, if we're doing accounting, it's pretty easy to tell whether we got it right or not. You know, you could sort of say, well, again, numbers aren't adding up. Okay, well, let's figure this out. This isn't working right. Um, it's a different kind of problem solving. With creative work, it is highly qualitative often. And in the end, somebody is either going to give you the thumbs up or thumbs down based upon 
in some cases, their subjective opinion. No matter how research-based your work is, no matter how tight your rationale is, they're going to give you the thumbs up or thumbs down. And it's basically based on what they perceive to be right or, or, or not right with regard to the work. And so one of the tools that I like to teach people to help them determine in, in a, a little bit more of a, not quantitative way, but a little bit more of a, uh, an objective way, which idea is the right idea. Um, and it spells the, the, uh, the, the word epic, um, which I don't like doing things like that where, Hey, it spells this, but, uh, but it does, it spells epic, um, is to, if you have a handful of ideas, you're trying to evaluate, you're trying to decide between, um, I, I encourage you to use this framework to do it. It, it works really, really well. The, the first thing is you're going to ask, is it effective? Is this idea effective? Does it solve the problem we set out to solve? Uh, or does it not? And you can even rate this on the scale of one to 10. So you can put these ideas up next to each other and say, okay, which of these is most effective on the scale of one to 10? How well does it actually solve the problem that we're trying to solve? The P is practical. How practical is it for us to execute this idea given our resource constraints, given, given our time constraints, given the fact that we only have a couple of team members who can work on this? How practical are each of these ideas? Again, on the scale of one to 10. And then is it interesting and cool is the final uh, metric here on a scale of one to 10. How excited are we about this idea? Because sometimes, you know, maybe there's an idea that doesn't seem as effective, but it's really cool. And so somebody's really arguing for it. Okay, well, that's fine. Give it a 10, but it's only a four on effectiveness or a five on effectiveness, um, which means maybe it's not the best idea, even though it's got a lot of energy in the room because it is cool, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem we're trying to solve. So once you've ranked all of your ideas using this framework, you know, effectiveness, practicality, and then is it interesting and cool, then you can actually have a meaningful conversation. You can say, okay, well, idea two isn't quite as practical as idea one, um, but I think we can make it more practical if we dot, dot, dot. So it's a great jumping off point for iteration. Uh, and, it, and it also, as a leader, it gives you an opportunity to do some teaching with your team about how you think about ideas. Is, right, or how you think about practicality, or how you think about resource allocation, how you think about what actually is cool and what actually is interesting, um, you know, from a creative standpoint. And so, this is, I mean, you know, in a world of highly subjective, <laughs> you know, measurements, um, I find this tool to be really helpful because it gives teams a framework to have meaningful discussion instead of just saying, "Well, I like it. Why don't you like it?" Which isn't always helpful. So I grew up in a really big family and my parents, I don't ever really remember seeing them argue or fight. Um, and I think it made me very uh, conflict uh, averse mm. <laughs> as well. And one of the things you talk about is that, you know, really healthy teams can fight in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this actually happens pretty frequently. I have a, a manager approach me and say, you know, oh, we're, we're a really healthy team. We never fight. And I just want to, I just want to you know, grab them lovingly by the shoulders and say, you're the most dysfunctional team I've ever encountered in my life. Right. Because listen, if you have, 
healthy, talented, creative people in the room together, there is going to be conflict. Conflict is the natural result of talented, driven people bumping into each other. It's going to happen. If there's no conflict, it means, A, there's no accountability on the team. So nobody feels the need to speak their mind or bring their opinion to the table. Uh, B, people are just phoning it in. People really don't care about the, the work. Or C, you've created such a culture of fear and conformity that people feel like they can't speak their mind without risking losing their job. So if there is never conflict, it means that there's something that's not healthy in your organization. Now, that doesn't mean that free-for-all conflict should be the norm. No, of course not. Uh, we have to have some healthy principles for conflict. And this is one of the things that I went into in Herding Tigers. There are a couple of rules I think that we have to follow whenever we have some kind of argument about an idea or about a direction or something. I think, number one, we have to agree on common ground from the start. I think sometimes, especially in today's culture, and we're seeing this play out in the political arena right now, we've seen it in the marketplace in a handful of ways, we are seeing scorched earth strategy playing out everywhere. It's, I will destroy the ground between you and me, and I'm going to fossilize around my opinion and I'm just going to fight just because I'm fighting because I disagree with you. Um, I think it's important in any conflict when we disagree to agree on the common ground from the start and say, okay, are we actually fighting about the same thing here? <laughs> you know, because I, I, I don't know about you. I've seen in a lot of organizations I've worked with where two people are having a, an argument and then they get about halfway through and they realize, oh, we're, we're actually not even fighting about the same thing. I didn't realize that. We were just fighting to fight, but we weren't even having – we weren't even talking about the same thing here. We, we actually have a lot more common ground than we thought. So that's the first thing. The second thing I always encourage people to do is – Try as much as you can to articulate the other person's point of view before you disagree with them. Make sure that you understand their argument as well. So not only that you're arguing about the same thing, but that you understand their perspective and their argument. So try to articulate their point of view and even share with them, here's where I agree with you and then here's where we diverge. So that way you can see what you're actually fighting about. Um, and then the third thing is, you always fight over ideas. You never fight over personality. The moment a, a conflict gets personal, everybody loses. So when I talk about conflict, I'm not talking about, oh, I hate those people. I hate that person. I can't stand that. You know, so I'm just going to like muscle up every time they introduce an idea. No, that's not healthy conflict. That's just stupid conflict. And so we can't allow conflict to get personal. It has to always be about ideas not personality. And if we follow these principles, then we're going to have people, uh, an environment where people feel like they can bring their ideas to the table, an environment where people feel like they can disagree and we can even hash it out and it can get really animated. Listen, another thing I want to say that, that is a little bit controversial, um, but I think it's also important to recognize, you know, I hear often people say, oh, you know, our, our team is a family. We're like a family. Um, well, maybe you're like a family, but you're not a family. And I think that's a, a very unfair thing that managers do or, or business owners do is when they say it's a family, because I don't know about your family, but I'm not kicking someone out of the family if they don't do their chores this week. You know, like uh, they're still going to be a member of the family. Now, there might be consequences, but uh, they're not going to get kicked out of my family because they didn't do their job. You know, there's a baseline level of performance you have to maintain in order to stay employed. And so treat, saying to, to, to a group of people, oh, we're a family. No, actually you're not because somebody in this room might be fired at some point. 
if they fail to do their job. Um, and so we have to, you know, we have to make sure that we're treating people on in our organization with trust and respect. We don't have to like everybody we work with. You know, you probably won't like everybody you work with. That's okay as well, but we have to treat them with trust and respect and we have to fight well. And if we do that, then we're going to, our culture is going to get sharper and sharper and sharper and more and more focused and more and more refined over time. And people will trust one another because they'll know that people are speaking up. One of the things I love that uh, when books do this is that each chapter you kind of have some, you know, here's some summary points, here's some actions, here's ways that you can talk with the team, here's some habits you can uh, develop. So you kind of give uh, people a, a whole tool, toolbox of ideas uh, to end each mm -hmm. chapter rather than saying do X. Yeah. So, Todd, where can people find more about you and uh, about Herding Tigers? Well, the best place to find Herding Tigers is wherever books are sold. So, uh, you know, wherever you, you shop for books, you can find it. Um, and the best place to find me is at accidentalcreative.com. That's where our podcasts are and uh, all the other work that I do. So uh, that would be the best place to find me. Well, and you have, uh, as I know, the book is in some ways a starting point. You have a course and training and workshops and everything that you do around that as well, don't you? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we have a uh, Herding Tigers workshop that is basically our two-day in-person workshop, but it's distilled down to basically a four-hour video course with you know exercises and workbooks and all kinds of things. So basically, it's like me coming to your company for two days. Only you can you can get through it in four hours. Now four hours to experience it, but then you know you have to do the work beyond that. But it's uh, it's basically that distilled into a video course. You don't do the work for us. <laughs> no, unfortunately, I can't do the work for you. Sorry. It would be so much better if I could, but no, I'm sorry. I can't do the work for you. Well, Todd, thanks so much for joining us. Spend time with us. Hopefully next time I'm uh, in Ohio or somewhere out there on the road, we can bump into each other again. Yeah, that'd be great. And John, thanks for the great work that you do. 